welcome back to the Mandate Podcast, a podcast where we encourage people towards deeper relationship through meaningful conversation. A podcast where you'll get to know people from the 605. Here's our latest episode. with my main man, the Ryan Pros and Cons Cons. Ryan Cons, how you doing, my hey, friend? Hey, I'm doing well. Ben, how are you? I am I am so good. I have been looking forward to this uh, since we set it up a few, well, last week, uh, because we have not been doing a whole lot of recording lately. So been very little, excited to be back in the saddle. Been a little summer, summer-ish visit for us. Yeah, yeah, it's South Dakota, so... Yep. You know, families are, we're trying to get outside as much as we can. There's a lot of vacationing that happens yeah. uh, for not only us, but for our guests. So as we record this, we're on the heels of 4th of July celebration. What'd you guys do? We went up to Lake Thompson uh, on 4th of uh-huh. July, came back to had some dinner uh, and then shot off some fireworks. Awesome. And Saturday and Sunday, we were at the in-laws house. They had a big old inflatable water doohickey and uh, we let the kids Go wild on that. I did get a sunburn. I have not had a sunburn in a couple summers. No kidding. Yeah. Right on my shoulder and it hurts. Uh, I did the same thing. I did the same thing. What did you do? I went to the Lake Chatech and one of our one of our mandate fans, Taylor Rigno, T Riggs. T Riggs. T Riggs. He was he was there and didn't call. So we have a funny thing. So he his his mom is on Lake Chatech and his in laws are on East Lake Okaboji. My parents are on Chatech. My in-laws are in East Lake Okoboji. So we literally have like these two places that we are at, uh, but we just keep missing each other. So I said, next time you're there, let me know and we'll catch up. He didn't. He did not let me know. And I let him have it today. As you office. should. So, uh, so T-Riggs, shout out T-Riggs. Thanks for listening. Also, it was hot. It was really hot. So before 4th of July weekend, I helped my brother-in-law move from St. Louis to Iowa City and it was hot in both cities. And you were working in a box truck, which has no uh, AC. Exactly. Yep. And I got to drive the U-Haul uh, a little ways too with him. So that was kind of fun. It's good to catch up with him. Did he but, do all the driving? Uh, no, actually. And I will, I probably shouldn't say this because he was the one insured on it, but he did let me drive a little bit. So it was actually pretty smooth drive. It wasn't windy or anything? No, no. I actually That's lucked huge. out there. Lucked out there because it was just a big box we were driving. So. But it was good. It was really fun. It's good to see him. Uh, Iowa City's a nice city. Got to hang out with a good friend of mine, John Heineman, mm-hmm. from college. I don't know if you remember. Oh, yeah. You remember him? Heine? Yes. Yeah. So we knew all the same people. We just didn't know each other in college, exactly. really. Okay. So Heineman and I caught up. He was an usher in my wedding. Nice. We're good friends, and I was in his, or went to his wedding as well. So, uh, so Heineman's got two kids now and doing well. Doing real well, actually. Sweet. Looks as good as always. Yeah. Of course. Well-dressed man. Yep. So I know we love talking about weather on the show, but holy smokes, did we have some weather yesterday? Yeah. So we're coming off a, you know, this is like the third tsunami, you know, the Midwestern version of a tsunami, which is like 80 mile per hour winds that we get in like 15 minute increments. And that another one of those blew right through a bunch of powers out in Sioux Falls, tree limbs down, people's houses destroyed. So Pam and I were driving, well, the family's driving home from Shtek yesterday because we stayed up through the fifth. And we're like, well, there's supposed to be some thunderstorms that might come through. So we'll just keep an eye on it. Well, 
Uh, we stopped in Valley Springs at my friend Mark Olson's house because the sky was awfully green and the wind was starting to blow. And so I called my friend Mark. I was like, hey, Mark, what you doing? <laughs> he was like, just watching the storm come through. I was like, you mind if I swing by quick? So we did. We parked at his house and let the storm blow through and we were fine. But Nice. Uh, yeah, thank you, Mark Olson. I'm not even sure if he's listened to the show. That's okay. Maybe I'll ask he him. will now. Maybe he, he will just, now. He just itched his nose. And, he's and like, he oh, just got talking about me. And he just got married over the weekend, too. That's dope. He surprised his friends. So they could... One thing we want to shout out is we are back here uh, at Trey Ministries. Sandy and Trey Ministries have been an awesome partner for Mandate. Just want to shout them out. Uh, it's a uh, Christian refuge, essentially, uh, for, um, uh, let's say, young adults. I think yep. that's the best way of putting it. Uh, in fact, they are on their way out uh, to do some mission work here in the, I believe, in the state of South Dakota. So they got a bus uh, and a van that's taking some young adults out into the world and providing some of uh, God's great talents uh, to God's great people and earth. And I just noticed they're packing lunches right now, so they're either feeding themselves or feeding someone else. So they're, yep. Thank you, Sandy, for the space. Absolutely. Uh, so we uh, have an interesting... Uh, we've never had someone back on mandate. Uh, we've always just done a single person, uh, and that's where they've been, right? They tell their story, they move on, all good. We also haven't really done a whole lot of, um, what, what would you call them, like an episode where it's where you like learn something, right? Right, right. right? Yeah. And so we've really only done one of those, and we did that with today's guest. And what we didn't get out of today's guest was we got the real world stuff that you can like implement and you have a better understanding about now after listening. We've got some awesome interaction, especially from our male listeners uh, for Mandate. Like, hey, I listened to that episode uh, and I learned a whole lot. I uh, appreciate you putting that out. Uh, and then we found out or you knew uh, that there is kind of there's an actual like story to be told here. Yes. Yeah, so we have Kyle Pickner back. So welcome back, Kyle Pickner. And this is part two. So we talked about cryptocurrency and that was a great, you know, people learned a lot about cryptocurrency, how it works and what it is. Uh, since Kyle was on that show, cryptocurrency is tanked. So we're not blaming Kyle, but we're kind of <laughs> blaming Kyle a little bit. So uh, he's been out talking about it. So also really the one in the state of South Dakota and parts of Minnesota, Iowa, <laughs> Nebraska. He's a subject matter expert. So, so clearly put, he's, he's got some initiative of bringing the, <laughs> Markets down. Now, so Kyle, uh, for those of you listening that aren't don't understand cryptocurrency, Kyle really doesn't have anything to do with the market, but um, he is really into that space and understands that world. So today, cryptocurrency, or I should say Bitcoin, is trading about 20,000, just over 20,000. It's gone you know, in the 19,000s as of recently. But uh, Kyle, what'd you do? <laughs> well, I'm happy to be the first repeat guest back on the Mandate Podcast. Thank you, Ryan and Ben. Oh, the crypto markets, they are very volatile right now. Uh, the best way to explain it when I go out there and talk about it, I've been doing this for about 10 months going out in the world talking about it, and it's gone from, you know, highs of 70,000 Bitcoin down to around, you know, 18, 19, 20,000 now. Uh, there's a lot of leverage in the system over the last 18 months. Essentially, it was on an upward trajectory where it was just like a straight line going up. And a lot of it was due to over leverage and a lot of people lending out, taking funds, lending them out, uh, you know, getting 12, 15, 20% uh, rates of return or interest rates on, on their crypto. Obviously, 
people thinking that's risk-free money, which it's not. If you ever get, uh, if you've ever been in, you know, involved in any sort of lending, borrowing, that kind of thing, uh, no money is really free money, um, and that's really what it has to do with. There's a lot of deleveraging coming through the system, very similar to 08 and 09 with the housing crisis, where there was a lot of leverage in it and need to be kind of decoupled from the system and there a lot had to be some failures and things like that and that's really what's happening now you're going to see a lot of pullback probably for the next uh it's been going on for a little while but i think probably the next 12 to 18 months will be it'll trade within this it'll go down i think even more you see a lot of people with maybe 12 to fifteen thousand for bitcoin and maybe like 500 to 700 for eth but you'll see a lot of this trading range um while a lot of companies go down there's a lot of uh acquisitions failures things like that and then once that happens uh you'll see a lot more adoption um coming through there's still a lot of vc venture capital money coming into the system so i think in june of uh 2022 there was like just 3.7 billion dollars of vc money still coming into crypto blockchain nft startup companies so there's still a lot of money coming into the system adoption in terms of institutional wise is not slowing down at all uh, a lot of it is just more, it's very, it's not systemic to the economy in general, but to the crypto economy, a lot of what's happening now is very systemic. So you're going to see some bigger companies fall. And then a lot of the ones that are well capitalized and didn't get into this are going to start acquiring uh, that and still expanding. So you're not seeing any slowdown of anything right now um, in terms of really internally into the, into the cryptoverse. Um, but you'll see prices, you know, uh, trade around this kind of, you know, between 15, 20, 30,000, probably the next 12 to 18 months for Bitcoin. And then after that, probably into this time next year, into 2023, you'll see a rise in prices um, is really what, you know, what'll happen. You'll be, you'll see a lot more, a lot more widespread uh, applications in terms of payment financing, uh, credit, things like that. You'll see a lot more widespread adoption and use cases built into the real world economy as opposed to just a developers building for developers so so kyle uh if you take a warren buffett strategy uh could be a really great opportunity yes right now. yes if you I, want to buy in now's yes. a great opportunity yes so you shouldn't be scared if you did buy it you know a lot of people are buying at the highs going down losing 70 80 percent of their money Number one, I would never tell anyone to put more than like one, two, three, five percent of their portfolio into this. I don't give tax, legal, or investment advice, but I always tell people, you know, this shouldn't be something that you put all of your money into if you did and you lost it. You know, uh, I feel bad, but you know, this is a very risk on asset. It's a very risky asset in general, asset class, new kind of economy being created. But if you are uh, a believer in this is going to kind of be integrated into society, technology, financial services in general. And it's, you take a, you know, eight, 10, 15, 20 year approach, you know, this is going to be much bigger in the future. And this is a very, very, very good time to, to be a buyer right now and allocate yeah. some resources to this. So there's some bigger banks that are starting to get into as well. And that kind of thing. And that's actually what, what your role is too, as far as like getting a bank in, involved in the crypto space. Uh, so it's such a, You've done such a well job with this in the short time you've been there that uh, you recently got an award since we had you on last time. Big award. Big deal. It's 40 under 40 emerging leaders from the Independent Community Bankers of America. So, And I believe the first person in South Dakota to win this award? 
Uh, I believe so, but there was also another person from Reliabank. I okay. forget, don't know him, but uh, there was another South Dakota uh, uh, banker or person individual that works at a bank that got it as well. So shout out to that person. I'm not sure. Who congratulations is, on the yeah, work. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, thank so, you. Very big deal. So uh, what, so tell us, explain to us why, like what, what led to that award? Uh, that I don't know. They just, like there was, so the not, so the know. nominations are, I don't really know. the nominations are anonymous. Uh, okay, so we, okay. so that I honestly do not know who nominated me. Um, well, since you don't know anyway, it's been, yep. But, uh, <laughs> it was like, from what I understand and what I received from the ICBA is that they just, uh, told me that I was nominated for this award, uh, back at the end of March and that I won, um, and kind of sent me some information about what I'm doing at planes, basically integrating, um, kind of digital assets and blockchain technology and into financial services, into community banking, going out there and educating and informing people of what this is and how it works and how it's going to kind of really revolutionize um, the future of technology and financial services and payment services and things like that. It's more about just educating professionals on it, not giving advice in any capacity or, you know, investment legal tax advice, but more about just educating and informing people on this new economy and this new kind of, you know, uh, value that's been created. So, so I, w I bring that up for the point of not to talk more about the cryptocurrency side of it, but to set the stage for, I mean, at, at one point in your past, and I really want to talk about your story because when we, after we'd recorded last time, uh, you and Ben had said, there's so much more to Kyle's story that we didn't get into because there's just so much to unpack with, with the crypto side of it. So, um, you went through a stage of your life when you were a young professional of homelessness. And so let's, let's go back to the beginning and wherever you want to start, whether you want to start at age three or 23, uh, take us through some of those stories, Kyle. Like what, what led you into homelessness? Uh, so it's a, I try to short it up. So not many people know this about me. I'd say probably maybe a dozen total um, really of anyone knows this, I've shared it with very few people. I'm not a personal guy to begin with, so I don't share a lot of personal history, anything like that, background, family stuff. I'm very much just keep to myself. Uh, so I was born and raised kind of Northern part of South Dakota, son of youngest son of two educators. Um, mom and dad were both in education. Mom was a teacher. Dad was a principal and uh, at a school that I attended and, um, I kind of grew up in around Millbank, South Dakota, if anybody knows where that is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my dad had been working at, um, Grand Dual High School and was the principal teacher coach there for a little over 20 years. And he, they cut his position, um, at the year, uh, my brother graduated. So I was a freshman, my brother was a senior and kind of at the end of the school year, he, he was teaching at the time and they eliminated his position. So he essentially had to find a new job to uh, go to. And he, you know, was applying for different jobs, but my parents kind of put it on my shoulders to uh, pick where we wanted to live next. So being like 15 years old and deciding where your family's going to reside was kind of a big responsibility. I didn't really want to move, but we didn't have a choice. So I chose Arlington, South Dakota. We moved to there. Um, you know, and my dad who had a master's in education had been, in education for 25 years and now going from being, you know, in education his whole life to taking a $12 an hour job at Dactronics really kind of opened my eyes to 
uh, the concept of, um, you know, what it means to just be doing things for your family and putting your, uh, you know, pride aside and things like that. And he was more than happy, you know, to do that. He wanted to get out of it and it was very stressful for, you know, for him to be doing that, you know, since he was in his early twenties to, you know, turning 50, um, and going into something that he just wanted to watch me, you know, grow up and play sports and stuff like that. So it was kind of humbling from, uh, from my experience as a, as a young person, uh, kind of going into the homelessness story. So I graduated from Arlington, graduated from the University of South Dakota in 2011, came up to Sioux Falls, uh, was doing, working in insurance at the time and kind of with one of my friends, uh, wasn't really a friend at the time, sort of was, kind of grew into a friend, uh, who was in my wedding, uh, this last fall, but he, um, I was working with him. I was kind of doing, uh, sales associate stuff with him and I've been doing that for about a year and a half. And, uh, he decided to go out and get an office himself. He was with a few other people. He wanted to go off on his own, get his own office and asked if I would come with him. So I kind of came with him and, uh, you know, we were basically working out of the same office. I was paying for, you know, part of the office expenses, but also paying for my apartment at the time. And, you know, being 24, 23, 24, you know, you don't have a lot of money to begin with. It's not like I grew up rich. My family, you know, was just modest people. Like, you know, if you're in education, you know, you're not making a ton of money. So it's not like I grew up in rich. I had student loans, uh, you know, had bills to pay, things like that. I um, didn't really have anyone to lean on, but also I was not in the verge of like, I didn't really ask people for anything anyway, growing up a lot. Um, so I wasn't making enough money doing this job, but I always remembered one thing that my mom always taught me, uh, or told me when I was younger was like, if you quit the first time you quit, it only gets easier to quit after that. Mm -hmm. So I made it the point to really take that and go, I don't want to quit this job and go out and find a new job just because it's hard and I'm not making enough money. So I really wanted to stick at this and do it. Um, you know, and really when we were, uh, you know, you guys are, you know, a little older than me, but you know, around that, you know, 2008, 2010, 2011, it was still very tough to find a job, you know? So like even coming out of college before I even got into insurance, uh, I had applied at numerous places and banks, things like that. Uh, you know, I probably applied for 30 different jobs, 30 different companies, maybe got five interviews, never even got a sniff for a job. So like, it was, it was tough. Like, it's not like now where you can just bounce around, you know, people listening to this. Now it's a much different, you know, environment for employee employee relationship, but, you know, 10, 12 years ago, it was not like this. So right. it was very difficult to, you know, you were, it was slim pickings. Like you had a job and you just kept it, you know, coming out of the, 08, 09 recession. Uh, so for me, you know, coming out of college in that time period, you know, just trying to land a job. Like I was even, I was interviewing for teller jobs and personal bankers. Nobody wanted to hire me. I was like, okay. So I kind of, you know, did the insurance thing and went into doing like kind of, you know, property casualty, life insurance, stuff like that. And, you know, but I wanted to stick with that because of what my mom always told me of, you know, if you quit one time, it's only going to get easier to quit into the future. So I always remembered that and was like, I don't want to just quit and go find something else. So I wanted to stick with that. So I basically had the decision to either stop doing this, uh, leave my friend kind of high and dry with the office 
and just pay for my apartment or let go of my apartment at the time, which was $550, which people might think, okay, that's not a lot now, but back then it was. Uh, so I was basically like, okay, you know, uh, this new management company took over the apartment. They were raising the rent anyway. So I decided uh, in at the end of August, early September to like, okay, well, I'm giving my 60-day notice and was going to figure out what to do after that. So on, I gave my 60-day notice uh, in September of 2012. And, you know, by November 1st of 2012, I was homeless and I was living out of my office. Uh, so for 165 days from November 1st, 2012 to April 15th of 2013, I essentially lived out of my office, uh, which I don't even know if I can say or should say where it was at, but it was on off of 41st Street. So, <laughs> uh, so very easy access location, but I essentially lived out of there. I was kind of like the working homeless, um, if what you, if people, you know, know or understand that. Um, so I had a job and I was making you know, making money, but I just wasn't making enough money to kind of pay my bills. And I didn't want to really, uh, you know, give up, you know, certain things and give up on my, on my job at the time, just because it got tough. So I decided to give up my apartment and I lived out of my office. I would, and that's really where my, you know, waking up, I'd always been an early riser, but I started to, when I worked at the office, uh, or slept out of the office, I woke up at, set my alarm, woke up at 2.30 AM, would go to the gym. Uh, I believe it's been converted into a great life gym now, but it was off of kind of sort of by Hy-Vee and th- uh, uh, Hy-Vee on 37th in Minnesota, kind of back around there. It used to be called X Fitness. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. so I worked out out of there. So I would get there by 3 a.m., uh, work out for, you know, 45, 50 minutes, hour, uh, shower out of there around 4 a.m. I remember this schedule vividly in my head because <laughs> it's so like implanted in there. Uh, you know, shower be done by 4.30 uh, you know, be to the office by five. I was always, you know, getting to the office. I would always be someone who was always in the office early anyway. So from a daily routine standpoint, no one knew this at the time. Like no one had any inclinations like that I was doing anything different with my life because I'd always been someone who worked, you know, put in a ton of hours, worked, uh, you know, worked late, you know, got in early you know, worked late, things like that. So I very much uh, did that. And I did it for 165 days. And it was very, you know, I wouldn't, I don't want to say it's humbling because I've always been very, you know, humble, but it really opened my eyes to, you know, being much more of a minimalist and understanding the difficulties and the struggle that people go through. Um, And a lot of probably why I am the way I am now, kind of in my daily life. I haven't really changed anything. I still wake up early, you know, still put in tons of hours for work and things like that. Uh, It just more kind of made me probably even more humble and gave me even more humility of, you know, doing that for that period of time. It was very, you know, challenging because I was trying to balance life out from a work standpoint and even friends because like all the friends I had, I still saw them all the time. They never suspected anything never never even had any inclinations that I was homeless at any capacity they were like dumbfounded and shocked when I like actually told them this you know they've always think like oh he's he's always had money and he always been this guy I'm like no that's not really how it has been so um that's kind of how I got you know really to that point Kyle were you a pretty structured person prior to that because it's 
whenever you and I have talked about this, it's always been like very, very structured. And you're still to this day, I would say pretty structured. You get super early in the morning. I'll get a text from you at like 4.30 every once in a while, just random. But is that structure thing, was that something before or is that something that came out of that? I've always been structured. So my dad was always very, very regimented in the schedule and structured. And I basically learned that from him. It was one of the traits that I picked up where he was always an early riser. I was always an early riser. Uh, so my structure never changed for the most part because I was still, before I was even homeless, I was still waking up early, you know, not as early as 2.30 because I had time to go, you know, go home and shower and stuff like that. But I was always, you know, 3.30, 4, 4.30, you know, early riser. The structure was always like get to the office early, work until X amount of time, go home, stuff like that. So the structure, the daily, you know, routine never really changed. It was just kind of the nighttime period of like, I don't have to go home and go to bed. So it, it saved me from, from that. And, you know, I always say this, it was very liberating experience, which might be weird to hear, but it was very, you know, liberating and it, it was very free where it was just like this thing that, like I said, it really opened my eyes to, um, you know, people who go through these daily struggles and may not have money or like, you know, living in, um, you know, people who are living in poverty or income restrictions and very making it through, you know, on a daily basis and not having, you know, enough to eat. Like I didn't, I didn't have a fridge. Like I was eating one meal a day, you know, sometimes may not eat at all because I did not have money. Um, things like that. I was basically paying for gas, making sure my bills were paid, trying not to take a hit on my credit history and things like that. So, uh, but it was very, you know, the structure stayed the same for the most part. It did not change at all. So I was very trying to keep it a secret. I did as much as I could to make sure that the structure stayed the same. So no one really thought anything was out of the ordinary. So Kyle, go into the the details. I think the, the audience is going to find it fascinating. Like how did you, I understand the showering at the gym. That makes sense. Like where did you, you have, you own some stuff. Like where's your, did you have like a, like a bag? Like did you had like deodorant and toothbrush and that stuff was in a bag and then were your clothes in your car or where were your personal possessions? Yep. How did you manage that? So when I moved out of my apartment, I basically sold everything that I owned other than my clothes and a few personal items. I had my Pontiac, red Pontiac Grand Prix at the time. So I put everything in my trunk. I had my, I had kind of a school bag that I would put my um, clothes in that I was going to wear that day. And then I had a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of medium sized laundry basket that I kept my clothes in. So I basically had seven pairs of clothes that I would wear. Um, and I kept them in there and then I would, you know, keep everything in the trunk and basically, uh, the clothes that I was going to wear that day, I would put them in my school bag and then uh, my workout clothes were in there. And then I would put my dirty clothes and have my clean clothes, put my dirty clothes at the bottom, put my clean clothes on top of my laundry basket. And then uh, whenever I would get to, you know, the seventh day and I would have, be on my last pair of clothes, then I would go to uh, the laundromat, which is over on 26th and Sertoma. I believe it's connected to a gas station. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would go to a very nice facility, I actually. would still like, I would still do laundry there if I uh, did not have a washer and dryer at home because their washers and dryers are really, really 
nice and easy to use and they actually do a really good job. So <laughs> shout out to them, whoever owns that. Uh, but so I would go there and uh, do laundry on the seventh day and then clean all my clothes and, you know, kind of do that. Um, but I didn't really own a lot of personal things. A lot of the things I had, you know, for the most part were at the office. So anything that I did not uh, sell or throw away from my apartment, I kept in my office. Uh, so, and I, you know, never had a, when I was going to sleep, I would, I didn't have a pillow or a blanket. I was essentially, I would put my shoes together and then fold my clothes on top of my shoes and then use that as a pillow and then use my coat as a blanket, uh, and kind of sleep on my back. <laughs> and I would kind of try and I would always keep the lights on, things like that. Um, but there were days where I would, uh, there would be people or cleaning people at the office. So I would have to leave the office and I would go to drive out to uh, the Flying J and sleep in my car. I think that probably happened maybe like 20, 25 times, um, 25 maybe nights that I slept in my car, uh, which was kind of not good because it was really cold in the winter uh, in South Dakota. So I would drive out there and, you know, sleep in my car for a few hours uh, and do that and then wake up at, you know, 2, 2.30 and drive back uh, to town and go to the gym and things like that. But um, that's kind of how I did for my personal belongings. I, I got rid of a lot of things. So most of what I kept was anything that I used from a, from a work standpoint, computer, coffee pot, you know, kind of clothes. And I just really kept everything in my trunk. I didn't, you know, I sold my golf clubs too. So I had to buy new golf clubs after I became not homeless, which was like four years later, but, or not, I wasn't homeless for four years, but four years later, um, around 2015, 2016, I, or 2016, I bought uh, golf clubs again. So, so I basically didn't golf for like three years. Quick pause. We appreciate you listening to this week's guest on the Mandate Podcast. To support the Mandate Podcast, please, if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Also, like and subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at MandatePod or shoot us an email at mandate.pod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. So Kyle, there's... I wanted to talk about the physical first because I think it's an easier place to land. But look, talk me through the emotional side. I mean, if if I'm in your shoes, there's a pride. That's that it, you're prideful now, looking back, and you, you say something like it's liberating, and I can see that. I, I think that I could totally be accustomed to that. But then there's like this, uh, you know, American Midwest consumer driven mentality um where like i'm not i'm paying my bills but i'm not making anything above that and i'm homeless so talk me through like how are you emotionally dealing with this because part of it you you're probably not cognizantly i'm assuming here so take this away i assume part of you is you're not vocalizing this, right? This isn't on social media that you're homeless. So you are having, there's a party that's having to hide this from people. So how are you, how are you dealing with all of those emotions during that time? At the time it was very, very difficult. Uh, I was so structured in my routine that I did, it was, I did not think about it as much as a lot of people would because I was so structured and because I was always, I was trying to do things to keep my mind off of it. So I was very good at not really, I was very good at like really compartmentalizing it and 
uh, and I'm not an emotional person to begin with. So I'm very much like my father who is not just kind of like, you know, all business all the time. I'm very much like that. So I do not have, I have emotion, uh, but it's much easier for me to just rip the bandaid off and deal with it immediately. And then, okay, this is a situation. This is what I'm going to do moving forward. So I did that. And because my routine was so structured, I didn't have a lot of time to think about it um, from an emotional standpoint. But there was a few, you know, down times where <laughs> I can specifically remember coming back from. Uh, so I went out to my parents' uh, place. They lived in Pier at the time. And uh, I'd been out there for Thanksgiving and was out there for five days. And I never go to my parents' place for five days there, but I think and they probably knew something was up because they're like, he comes here for two days and then leaves. And they're thinking, why is he here for five days? But then I went out there for Christmas and was there for two weeks. And I'm sure alarm bells went off uh, then. But then I came back from Christmas and New Year's and I came back on January 3rd uh, to Sioux Falls from Pier. And that's when I really like kind of broke down. Um, so I had that kind of this breakdown one night when I was sitting there <laughs> in the office and realized like the situation was in and that was like the bandaid ripping off. Cause the two months before that, you know, I was kind of just doing it and didn't really think about it. But then coming back from the holidays and being with my family and then, um, you know, that, that standpoint, uh, ripping the bandaid off there from just like a breakdown. I really broke down that night and I was like, okay, this is the situation I'm in and I got to figure out how to fix it. So, you know, not paying that $550 a month for the apartment. I was saving that every single month. So it was starting to give me this cushion for money. And, you know, that's what I'm making. And eventually I'm going to get out of this thing. And I was starting to plan like the next, you know, I'm going to be able to get out of here by, you know, May, June, um, you know, and find a place to live. And that's really what was like the outlook uh, from my standpoint is like, what is the future, you know, is going to be better. It's not going to be you know, I didn't think, you know, could it have been worse? Yes. Could have fallen, you know, uh, ill to some other, you know, scenarios or things like that. But I, you know, from my standpoint, I was like, this is what I'm doing every day. This is what I'm going to do. I'm saving this amount of money every single month. I'm going to get out of this, you know, in the future, you know, in the next few months by spring, summer, I'm going to be in a better place than I was. And that really gave me hope, uh, that what I was doing in the path that I was on was, uh, going to be good for my future. So you were eating one time a day. Yes. What were you eating? <laughs> uh, it really depended. So I didn't, I, so I would normally, uh, they had a vending machine at this office that I worked at. So maybe I would buy a Snickers kind of in the morning. Um, and that would kind of hold me over until night. And then I would go to, uh, mcdonald's and i would buy like a cheeseburger with just cheese or a mcchicken or something like that and that's kind of what i would eat or i'd go to taco bell and get like two hard shell tacos and that's really probably what i ate for like you know six months unless i was uh you know visiting my parents which you know i was obviously eating then but in terms of like actually being by myself in sioux falls that's really what i ate so i uh wasn't gaining any weight i was working out which was good i was very fit mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, but I wasn't eating, eating the best, um, you know, didn't have a lot of expenditures from those, um, from the discretionary side. So it was, uh, from that standpoint, I was saving money. I didn't have to pay for any food. Um, you know, uh, so that's pretty much what I was kind of doing for the most part. So I was probably eating less than, you know, 
1,800 calories a day. Right. So. so your friend or anybody in the office, did anybody suspect it at any point? I've never actually talked to him about it, so uh, he may have, um, but he knew I was always there at, you know, early and late anyway before I ever became homeless. So he may have suspected it at some point. Um, he's very smart, so I wouldn't be shocked if he did know that. But yeah, I, uh, I he never brought it up. If he did suspect it, he never brought it up. So. What did you tell him, or have you told him yet? I don't believe I have ever told him Maybe actually. You want to share so. this podcast them. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So surprise. Yep. I always thought Kyle was a hard worker. So <laughs> let's go on the backside of this. Um, you you get yourself out of being homeless, and and you've clearly become quite successful in what you're doing now. Um, and we'll leave that up to listeners to decide what success means. However, um, there is a, a, a giant narrative here in our community about homelessness. Uh, what, what, do you have any emotion towards that, or do you have any affinity for? Do you have any emotion towards people who who are homeless? And and, and maybe it's you know we don't need to talk about in turn we don't need to talk about the mental side of homelessness, uh, but of the people that are literally trying to make it work and they're doing what they can with yep. what they have and they're you know, much like the situation you have. Yeah, I mean, my thoughts for the most part are it is, you know, there's this kind of stigma attached to it, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, that it's just like, oh, this person's homeless. They just need to go out and get a job. It's like, well, that's not really... True, there's probably a lot of people who are homeless who are working, you know, like I was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and coming out of the backside of it, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel, you know, but my situation, you know, may be different from a lot of other people who, you know, they might have a wife or family and kids and stuff like that and are homeless. You know, me, I was lucky enough to, it was just myself and it was just, you know, I could take care of myself. Having other people to take care of and being homeless was much more challenging. So I sympathize for everyone who is going through that and I don't want it. You know, there shouldn't be this stigma attached to this because some people, you know, are trying to do what they can every single day and are working and, you know, trying to get ahead. But it's just very, it's very difficult, you know, especially in times of now where, you know, you see a lot of inflation and, you know, uh, you know, it may be challenging from, you know, providing for, you know, family and kids and things like that. So I don't think there should be this stigma attached to it. And it's, you know, holds, it's always going to hold a place in my heart because I did experience it. Um, You know, coming from the backside of it and now where I'm at, uh, it's something that I, and I've always been really open to it. Probably it took me I don't know, probably five to six years before I really felt comfortable talking to anyone about it outside of my family. So my mom, dad, brother knew really right after I got out of it that I was, but no one else knew. I think Ryan was the fourth person I actually told Mm -hmm. uh, in 2018, I think, 2018, 2019. Um, And that was, he was the fourth person I ever told. And there's, you know, maybe you know, a dozen others that really know that I've kind of told, but I know it's not an open thing that I share really to anyone or did at the time. I was just very, uh, you know, I had that. I didn't want anyone 
to know about it. I was very much trying to keep it secret. And I like, you know, I want to talk about it much more now because I don't want that stigma attached to it. And like for anyone who is, I want it to keep like there is light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, there shouldn't, you shouldn't look down on people that may be going through, you know, Mm -hmm. something like this in their lives. At what point do you decide that this is enough? Did you have a certain like monetary goal in place or did you just at one point decide like, okay, I'm going to go sleep in the bed in a, in a, in a place with walls. That's not my office. Uh, so it really changed for me. I, so I did it through April 15th and I actually, it was when I was approached. So I have a friend who's been in the, uh, kind of, I'm obviously in the trust industry. Um, and he had been working in the trust industry and he was helping this company get started in South Dakota and they needed a worker. So he kind of pitched them my resume and everything like that. So I really got this, this I got this job. Um, you know, and it wasn't a high paying job. I was making $15 an hour. So it wasn't like, ex, you know, it wasn't this huge amount of money, but I was like, okay, you know, I'd saved up enough money. I'd saved up enough money where I can go, I can go pay the first month rent. I can go, uh, you know, pay, you know, uh, the deposit on this apartment and things like that, that I had enough money and I would be making this amount of money, you know, for, you know, uh, the future. And I really could project like for the next year, like what my income was going to be, what my expenses were going to be. So um, it was at that point in April of 2013, uh, that I got that, got that position. And that really changed. It was like, okay, now I for sure can go get a place. And that's when I went and got a place. But even when I had a place, you know, I had paid for my, I had to save up to get a bed. So I, at the time when I had an apartment, I didn't even have a bed in my apartment. So I was sleeping on the floor. Uh, <laughs> so I had two folding chairs. I didn't have cable, internet, anything like that, um, which was fine because it allowed me to still work through, you know, still allowed me to maintain being a hard worker. I didn't ever lose that. So I was very much of the mindset. I, I was still trying to make things <laughs> Awkwardly, I was trying to make things very difficult for myself to keep that edge to me. Mm. Um, I always wanted to have that motivation factor if I always wanted to be working and learning and, you know, doing that. So I always tried to maintain some sort of edge or some sort of motivational factor um, in terms of working and not getting comfortable. Uh, So really, even when I had an apartment, it was nine months before I even bought a bed because I just wanted to, you know, sleep on the floor Um, so I did that. I was like, okay, I got a wall, a roof and, you know, walls around me, but I don't actually, (laughs) I don't actually in my own place to, you know, be and shower at, but I didn't have a bed. So I saved up money for a bed. And then, you know, uh, August of that year, you know, I kind of bought a bed and everything like that. So what was it like to sleep on the bed for the first time in that, that long? It was, it was good. Uh, (laughs) sleeping on the floor was, uh, uncomfortable. So, but you know, it was, like emotionally, like I said, it was very, like, I didn't think about, like, I was so in, like, it was so just, I was just day to day. Like, it was just like, I was so routine that I never really thought of it. It was just like, here's your, it was more like a robot, like a machine of like, you know, switch goes on, switch goes off. Uh, I was so regimented in my schedule and, you know, so routine based is like, I didn't really give myself a lot of time to reflect and think about it during in the moment. 
So, How did that conversation go with your parents when you told them that you were home? Obviously, there's nothing they could have done because you've already been homeless. But I can't imagine what that conversation would look like with like telling my parents, hey, I just spent the last seven months being homeless and I probably should have called you earlier for some help, but I didn't, didn't want to burden you. So I'm telling you now, uh, how did that go? Uh, it was difficult. My mom always <laughs> talks about how she uh, wishes I would have called her for help because obviously that's what parents are there for. Um, you know, you know, I'm not even really a prideful person, but I was just like, I wanted to get myself out of that situation. Uh, you know, I was kind of like a pull the, you know, put my, you know, put the boots on and like pull myself out of that situation. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I, what I did. I just didn't want them. I didn't want to them to know that I was struggling you know, and I'd never been someone who even like asked my parents for help anyway, for the most part, like mm -hmm. even, you know, as a kid or, you know, you know, high school, college student, you know, I never, I was just never, you know, I talked to my parents, but I never had that really like call them, ask them for help, all this stuff. So I'd never been like that at all. So not doing it never really, you know, I never even honestly even thought about calling them when I was going through through it and asking them for help. I just didn't want to do that. I just was like, you know, I got myself into the situation or my, you know, I was in the situation and I was going to get out of my, get out of it myself, um, to, you know, show, you know, kind of prove to myself that I can, I can do it. And I did that. And then talking to them about it, you know, they always, you know, they, they don't blame themselves, but they always, you know, they felt bad for me not asking them for help. So I think it might be more tougher on them thinking like, hey, he didn't think that he could come to us for help when he really could. Uh, but it's nothing that they did. It was just my mindset was like, I'm going to do this myself, and I wanted to do it myself. So. What kind of um, support systems do you have now, and what kind of support systems did you have leading up to, you know, your, your eventually, you know, the position that you're at now? Because I feel like you've been more open since this happened. I feel like that would be a very solo, secluded venture. And then now as you've gained some success, you need some advocates behind you yep. or some people that you can kind of lean on and push things to. Who are those people? Uh, Ryan's definitely been one. So he's been a big advocate for basically the last like five years uh, of my life. Um, you know, Knowing the story, you know, before, you know, when we met, you know, I don't know what he thought of me before or anything like that, but understanding the story and going, you know, when I tell people that I was homeless at a time, they really go, it shocks them, but they go, okay, I understand the way you are the way you are, like why your personality is the way it is. Uh, so really they understand it um, once I tell them that, but like, you know, from a, support standpoint uh you know i've always had my you know mom and brother and dad who's passed away by now but you know to lean on um but then my wife too has been always um you know for the last two years that we've been kind of two and a half years we've been you know together and my wife since last october um she's been very good 
you know, support system and my friends, uh, you know, some of my friends have obviously been very encouraging and things like that, uh, in terms of once they understand, once I've told them that, you know, this, they understand, okay. And they've always been very supportive and understand how, you know, what I went through and then how I've gotten to where I am. Cause like you said, you know, whether or not people think I'm successful, you know, I'm in a much, much better place than I was. And, you know, now it's one of those things where, where I've come to, I've really, you know, and I haven't really changed in terms of personality. I still, you know, I wear the same clothes almost every single day. People are like, oh, he owns, only owns two shirts, a blue shirt and a white shirt. And that's really, you know, what I, you know, what I wear, I'm just very, you know, minimalistic and kind of, you know, I don't, I'm not this big flashy person in general. So I very much just like simple things and like to keep that structured routine. But I'd say, you know, Ryan was a very big advocate for the last five years since I told him I was uh, homeless, but then also, you know, my wife in the last two years, once I told her, and like I said, once people kind of understand it, they go, it opens their eyes and like understand like that's why he, his personality is the way it is and why he's so driven and motivated to, you know, do the things that he wants to do is because he came up kind of through this. Ryan, how does that make you feel? Uh, well, it's been fun being his friend, and I, I would I will tell you I will never forget the camera. We were at Cafea downtown. Shout out to Cafea, that's coffee. But we were there, and Kyle said, told me the whole story, and it was honestly like I was in shock. Almost I was like you got to be. I mean, like that's crazy, Kyle. But I said you should tell more people about this, and it took you a while, but um, but I'm glad you are telling people because it's yep. honestly this is a, a cool part of your story that. Um, people can get help from. And um, so I thank you for sharing this. And I, I hope that somebody listening today finds some hope and finds a new uh, sense of, I guess, hope. Yeah. Mm. Right word. But so, so last question, Kyle, I, I think it is a little bit of a softball, but I want you to, I, I want you to crush a home run here. Crucial home run, actually. Don't Cru- crush it. Crucial home run. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Crucial conversations. Then crucial. crucial conversations. <laughs> Um, are any of the decisions you make now, um, do you go back on your time of homelessness to make those decisions, either a yes or a no, or the fact that you're in something so risky, uh, are, do you go back on those times and like, well, can't be worse than that, that I'm going to invest in this, you know, something that's probably a big one, but do you, do you cross-reference your time when you had very little to where now you you have assuming some dispensable income yeah so now going from having nothing to you know having a lot uh has really opened my eyes to you know understanding like you know this is what i need and you know i have i have enough like there's you know, I've, I have enough. So I don't really, you know, when I'm out there doing, you know, I'm really, I love what I do, but you know, there's nothing that there's, there's nothing that would keep me from basically just being like, okay, you know, I kind of, you know, just want to take a break and just be done for a while and, you know, just reflect and kind of do my own thing. Um, I don't, 
I always think kind of in the future, like no, like the decisions I, that when I say like, it can always be worse. Um, you know, I always think like, you know, it, it can be. And when I say that, like I've actually lived, lived it. Like, even though mm-hmm. people, you know, everyone goes through the struggles and not every struggle is equal or, you know, some people might struggle more with, you know, one thing over another or the same thing that another person doesn't struggle with. But, you know, from my standpoint, being homeless, I've always thought like, uh, you know, it, I knowing it can be worse. And when I say that, I actually like mean it cause I've lived through it. Um, but anything I look at in the future, you know, I, I have enough. So it's, you know, I think like, okay, I'm not going to, you know, really struggle. I'm not going to, you know, I've put myself and my family and my wife and son in a, in a good position for the future. So there's nothing really that it can, you know, and I'm very much, you know, even though I have been in the crypto industry for a long time, I'm still very much, you know, from a money standpoint, investing standpoint, I'm still, you know, fairly conservative. You know, it's not like I have, you know, lost like 80, 90% of my money with, you know, the market and stuff like that. I'm still a very conservative investor. And from a job standpoint, like, you know, I could, you know, in all honesty, I could be happy doing anything. Um, I've always been of the mindset that like, you know, my job or position or status in life doesn't define me. It's really about, you know, just me personally and what I want to do for, you know, my family. I would be happy, you know, in all honesty, I talk about all the time how my favorite job would probably be uh, being like a night custodian or being like a garbage man, someone who just wakes up early or works, you know, things like that. Like, cause I would love that, uh, you know, just going to a job sort of like my dad after leaving education and going and just working at, you know, Dactronics and just out of like, just wanted out of the stress, stressful kind of, you know, kind of not, he wasn't in corporate society, but just wanted out of that stressful, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, career, uh, point of his life and he just was happy just going to work and going home and I always think about that too is like you know have have I reached that point when will I reach that point uh things like that so I think that's you know for the most part is it's just like uh you know it can always be worse but from my standpoint um I think that it's very much uh you know if you are going through this like there is you know you have to know that like what you're doing if you're on the right path just believe it and that you have hope for hope for the future so last question because we have crept up on over 50 minutes now oh i can sympathize with uh motivation how you motivated yourself uh so now you can go purchase i assume most of the things that you actually want and need um so what motivates you now uh, that's a, I ask myself that every day. So I'm very much of, I love what I do. So I've been in the trust industry. I love getting, I love starting things and kind of what I've been doing the, basically the past, you know, 10 years since I got into this industry is like helping companies kind of get started and get up and running and doing that really motivates me of getting these, you know, these companies coming in, you know, at the ground level and really just working my 
butt off until, you know, they get, you know, get up and running, get everything, you know, hire people, things like that. That really motivates me. Um, you know, what I'm doing now a lot with, uh, you know, crypto, blockchain, digital asset side, educating, informing people on this new kind of economy, uh, technology that's really created that motivates me, um, you know, and working to provide for my wife and son. I really like, that's essentially why more than anything that I do it. Uh, I just like, you know, I want to put them in a, I don't ever want to go back, you know, to that place of where I was at when I was homeless. So making sure that no matter what happens is that I will never be back there. Cause I always think about like, it's something that every day I wake up and look into the mirror. I always still think about it. It's something that crosses my mind every single day and I never want to go back there. So that's probably, you know, you know, another motivating factor other than wanting just to the best for my wife and son. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for coming back and talking about your story. And, uh, we really loved having you here and thanks for being thank you. a good friend too. First two time, first repeat guest, nailed it. Can't wait for the people to hear it. We'll see you next time on Mandate. Mandate does not exist without your continued support or the fact that you, KPP, keep pressing play. Another great episode of the Mandate Podcast is behind us. But here's something you can look forward to. Check out next week's podcast. Also, like and subscribe. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Find us on Instagram at MandatePod or send us an email, mandate.pod at gmail.com. Who knows? We might reference your email or call you out in episode. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash MandatePod. There's three easy ways to support monthly basis and all of the funds go right back into this podcast. KPP, keep pressing play. See you next time on Mandate.